0: Good morning. You guys hear me, all right? Okay, good. Uh, if you would, well, I get uh, situated. Uh, you guys can go ahead and turn to the Book of James. We're going to be in James chapter one. So, for my own peace of mind, I want to preface this with, um, I was back and forth with my wife yesterday. So as you can tell, and as they said, I'm not Pastor Jim, the bulletin says, Pastor Jim, that's not me. Um, but, uh, my wife and I, were driving down to West Palm yesterday for something that we were picking up and, uh, Pastor Jim called me and, uh, I said, how's it going? He said, fine. I said, you doing right? He said, yeah, I'm good. You could hear Kathy in the background. No, he's not. (laughs) So he said, yeah, that he had hurt his back and was asking if I'd be willing to preach today. I would already been scheduled to preach at Canal Point. Um, So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll do that. But um, just to be candid, I mean, what I was planning on preaching at Canal Point is a sermon I've preached before. I know at Treasure Island, I honestly, for the life of me, could not remember if I've shared this message here or not. So some of you may have heard this twice. And if so, for whatever reason, God decided that's what we needed to hear. so I've kind of been a little distraught about that, um, but honestly, just this morning, um, I'll be honest with you guys, this past month, but especially the past week or so, it's been a real trial for my wife and I. Um, all things are relative, I get that, but uh, it just seems like sickness will not leave our home. It's just kind of a revolving door of one thing after another. Last Sunday, I was here by myself. My wife had to stay home because our youngest daughter, Felicity, was sick with a high fever and thankfully found out what that was and started giving her antibiotics. But there's just been um, struggles associated with that. And then last night, my daughter, Adeline, got a fever out of nowhere. uh, So she's not here again today. And so it's just those sorts of challenges, those sorts of trials. And so this morning, as we were sitting at the breakfast table, having little kids, situations escalate, and it's kind of like, God, why is this happening? And uh, Stephanie pointed down, I had my notes in front of me and pointed uh, to a particular passage that we're gonna be going over, and it's just a really good reminder. So I I say all of that, um, that if for nothing else, I believe that God has me sharing this message today because it's something I need to hear. I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to be reminded of these biblical truths. And I hope that it does the same for you all. Uh, the book of James tends to be a familiar book with lots of us because it's so practical. Oftentimes it can be given the the nickname of the, the Proverbs of the New Testament because they're just, uh, quick sayings that are relatively straightforward, very practical, easy for us to apply. Um, so lots of people tend to spend time in the book of James, and that's, that's great. Uh, and so I just pray and hope that our time here today is just another means in which God chooses to use his word to uh, conform us into his image. And for anyone here that's still dead in sin, lost then that god would choose to use this to to draw you out so let me open us with a word of prayer and then we will get into james chapter one god i thank you for the privilege that it is to be here uh in your heart providence uh just as far as pastor jim and the struggles that he's going through with his backboard um I thank you for this opportunity. I do pray for Pastor Jim, Lord. I pray for healing, that ultimately whatever is amiss within his back, that you would write that, that you would give wisdom as to the means in which you choose to use to accomplish that, Lord. So I pray for that family. I pray for uh, the congregation that's here, those that are at home for various reasons, Lord, that you would just take this time to illuminate our hearts and minds to the reading of your word. Uh, that you would choose to use me despite myself, Lord, and ultimately that your spirit would uh, speak truth in life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to be reading through uh, James uh, chapter 1, verses. uh, I'm just going to go through 1 through um, 18. 1 through 18. All right, so uh, let me just read the text so we have that in our mind, and then I'll I'll go through uh, my notes here. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. So as we walk through this text, I want to just give a little bit of context to the book of James, who the author is, who the audience is, just so that way we have it within the right context that we understand. It's very easy with very practical literature, uh, the Proverbs text such as this uh, to quickly read and jump to application. How does this apply to me? And it's good. We want to learn how to apply the text, but we also want to make sure that we're applying the text within the context of what the author originally meant it to the original audience. So I just want to couch the context a little bit. So James was the half-brother of Jesus. Some would say the brother of Jesus, but obviously since Jesus was born of God, half-brother. But they they grew up together. And James was not a believer in Jesus Christ's message as him as a Messiah through his earthly life. It wasn't until Jesus says, Death, burial, and subsequent resurrection—that James uh, was converted, and he believed the gospel message, placed his faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, and was a, a became a, a, a brother in the church, um, and very influential amongst the early church. Uh, he was very zealous. Uh, his nickname was James the Just, and um, historians report—we don't know how accurate this is—but that apparently his knees looked like camel's knees because of how often he spent time knelt and kneeling in prayer. Um, so he was very zealous for the gospel and promoting that amongst the early believers. The audience, as it says in verse 1, is uh, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. The dispersion was whenever uh, the Jerusalem church began facing persecution after Christ's resurrection. The Christians were proclaiming the gospel. The Jews didn't like it. The Romans didn't like it. And so because of uh, persecution, they ultimately were spread abroad, which really was the fulfillment of what Christ said was going to take place as far as Uh, the Great Commission. So God absolutely uses trials and suffering and hardship to accomplish his plans and purpose. Uh, That's part of the reason for this letter is because that's what was taking place. James was reportedly martyred in 62 AD by being thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. And then he didn't die from that. So he was then beaten with clubs until he uh, was killed. So he suffered for the gospel. He was willing to suffer for the gospel and to proclaim good news so um that's a little bit of the context to the book of james the author the audience the time frame in which this was taking place it's interesting as we start out in verse one it says james a servant sometimes is translated in other translations as a slave james a slave of god and of the lord jesus christ very easy to brush over that, but just in that opening verse, James is acknowledging that Jesus is God, and that Jesus is Lord, and that he is a slave, a servant to God and Christ. It's a pretty big statement whenever you think about him growing up with Jesus, and it goes to show the power of the work of the Holy Spirit done in his life for him to be able to make a statement such as that uh, due to Christ's resurrection, but he absolutely affirmed The deity of jesus christ and him as lord um as we move on into verse two it says count it all joy my brothers when we meet trials of various kinds verse three for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing verse four i read verse four i'm sorry these verses are really interesting because whenever you think about it, it says count it all joy, my brothers. OK, that part sounds good when you meet trials of various kinds. So when we meet trials, when we meet hardship, are we supposed to grumble and complain? No, James tells the church to count it as joy. We are to count it as joy. How are we to have joy in the midst of trials? Percy Sproul says trials are can be considered pure joy only when there is knowledge that they are designed for a purpose. God is the one in control working all things for good. Romans eight twenty eight would affirm that. God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When we think of that, we think of all things. I think all too often it's easy for us to affirm the good things. It's easy for us to affirm the mundane things. But when we think of the hard things, when we think of the evil things that we witness in the world is god really working those for good too scripture would absolutely affirm yes he is and it's only when you rightly understand who god is and acknowledge his sovereignty unto all things and his providential work through all things that you can have joy in the midst of trials because you were reminded that your trials are used to conform you into the image of Christ. We'll get into the text more that will affirm that. So what is the purpose of trials? Sanctification. Sanctification is the purpose for us going through trials. The text says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. So we know this, that trials will have a full effect that ultimately produce in us perfection, completeness, and wholesomeness, if that's a word, that we're lacking in nothing. We can have joy amid trials because we know we are growing in Christ-likeness, seeking to bring glory to God, and fulfilling his plans and purposes for our lives. That whenever we are in the midst of these trials, we know God has placed us here. That we need to go through these trials because God has ordained. This is the best thing for us. It's very easy for us to lose sight of that whenever things get hard. Whenever there's challenges in our life, we think, why me, God? But the reality, it's not that God is sitting over here and we are over here. Going through our trials and our struggles, and God is saying, Stephen, what are you doing over here? Israel, what happened? I'm over here. You're over there. We're supposed to be together. What have you done wrong? No, God has foreordained us to go through there. He's with us in the midst of that valley because that's exactly where we need to be. That's true whenever we're dealing with disease. That's true whenever we're dealing with the death, the loss of loved ones. That's true whenever we're dealing with depression. That's true whenever we're dealing with whatever it is. God has us in the midst of that moment because that's the best possible place we can be. And that is where God is with us and working through us to ultimately conform us into his image. Now, I will say that that is not to to say That sometimes we're in the position we're in due to sinful consequences. Our sinful choices have consequences and we can find ourselves in the midst of hardship as a result of our sinful consequences. But again, that is not devoid of God's sovereign work in allowing that to happen because that's where he wants us. So we need to be reminded of that. Whenever we find ourselves in the midst of trials, whether it's from sin or whether like Job... Essentially, we have no power over it. This is just where we find ourselves. Remember, God is with us in the midst of it. He is working through it. If it's a result of sin, confess your sin, repent, turn to God and allow him to walk you through those trials. That's difficult. And that's why James moves on to verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we need wisdom whenever it comes to these circumstances that we go through in life. We need wisdom in general, regardless of trials and circumstances. Life is confusing and we need godly wisdom to know how to persevere through those trials. Uh, Wisdom is being able to apply godly knowledge to circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. And so for anyone who lacks wisdom, we're to ask God. God wants us to ask for wisdom and God will give us that wisdom. But the reality, brothers and sisters, it's not simply a passive thing. There's a passive nature where we need to go to God in prayer and say, God, please provide me with wisdom. But God has also provided us with wisdom through his word. There's a whole category of books in the Bible known as wisdom literature. The reality is the whole of the Bible, the Bible provides us with the wisdom. So we can be practically applying this truth by spending time in God's word and allowing that to provide us with wisdom, which will shed insight onto the circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. It may not be a one for one. It doesn't have to be a one for one. It doesn't have to be, Mark, you need to do A, B, and C in order to get to D. But God gives us truths within his word that will give us insight into the circumstances we find ourselves in. We're to ask God. But when we ask God, we are not to doubt. The reason why we are not to doubt is because whenever you doubt, you question the very character of God. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to wonder what are the means by which this is going to happen. But the reality is we can't doubt, will God give me wisdom? Will God provide for me in the midst of trials? Because if God's word says yes, he will give you wisdom. If God's word says yes, he will help you persevere through the midst of trials. That is who God is. And we do not and cannot question his character. We need to have faith in who God says he is as he has revealed himself to us. Proverbs nine ten says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom comes from knowing God. In order to know God, we need to read the Bible. That is the means by which he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Moving on, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I'll summarize these verses very simply. We could spend a lot of time delving into this with everything I'm covering. I'm trying to just kind of give a snapshot to a lot of this. Uh, But verses 9 through 11 essentially is saying um, Christ is foolishness in the world. It's a stumbling block to the world. It's folly to the Gentiles that Christ is foolishness. But that's where the text says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Those that the world deems lowly, those that the world deems as foolish, they will be exalted because ultimately their faith and hope is placed in Jesus Christ and God, who is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And it says the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The reality is, is that the world praises worldliness, but the world will pass away. Worldliness is fleeting. The riches that we acquire throughout this life are here one day and gone the next. There's no guarantee that you may have wealth, you may have security and whatever that looks like. But just like Job, one day you had it, the next day you don't. One day you're alive, the next day you're on your deathbed. There's no guarantee. So our hope cannot be placed in the things of this world. It needs to be placed in the eternal God and our only hope, Jesus Christ. The world's going to laugh at that, but that's okay. Because ultimately we know who is in control. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Each one's works will become manifest for the day. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done ultimately what if we place our faith and hope in we'll be tested we will be tested through fire and ultimately um, it's going to be revealed for what it is either it's going to withstand the test or it's going to be burnt up like stubble we need to reflect in our hearts where is our faith where is our hope what are we building the foundations of our life on verses 12 through 18. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for he has stood the test. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12, that word blessed that's there is actually the same word that's used when Jesus is preaching the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man who does A. Blessed is the man who does B. Some of us are hopefully familiar with that. I don't want to spend much time there. But it's the same word, and it's... It communicates happy, fortunate, blissful. That's what the word is seeking to communicate to us. So James here is using it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Happy, blissful, joyful is the man who remains steadfast under trial. This blessedness is found in remaining steadfast. We cannot have joy. We cannot have bliss. If we are in habitual sin, because sin robs of joy. Sin leads us astray. That's what the text will get into as we get through verses 13 through 18. But the text says that we need to stand the test. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This word stood the test, that little phrase can also be translated, some other translations, as have been approved, have been tried. So this is, we're going to be tested. We're going to be put through these trials ultimately to see where our joy and our hope is found. And as I said before in 1 Corinthians 3.13, it's going to be revealed for what it is. And the reality is, is yes, the text here says, blessed is the man for when he has stood the test. The reality is, is generally it's not one test. We're not going to go through life facing one test and once we make it through we got our get out of jail free card and it's smooth sailing from then on out. Um, I read a quote earlier this week, I'm gonna butcher it, but it was something along the lines of like, the Christian life is not um, sitting easy in an armchair, being carried to heaven. That ultimately we're gonna face challenges, we're gonna face suffering, we're gonna face hardship. And when one becomes a Christian, that is the beginning of that journey that we are to go through. And that can seem very bleak. But as James is affirming here, it's those trials where we find joy, where we find hope, where we find bliss, where we find genuine happiness. Why? Because it's Christ who's carrying us through that. We are working, we're walking alongside him as he's carrying us through his sovereign hand, through this, doing a work through the Holy Spirit and conforming us into his image. We are dying to the things of this world. Our sinful flesh is being done away with and we are being made new into the image of Christ. And brothers and sisters, isn't that better than sitting easy in an armchair, just striding through the things of the world without any speed bumps in our lives? Wouldn't you much rather be conformed to the image of him who died for your sin, who stood the gap for you, who faced the wrath of God so that way we can spend eternity with him? Rather than like Jim, the illustration he used last week, rather than being that man carrying that dead body on your back that's decomposing, Jesus looked at you and said, no, I'm gonna deliver you from that. And not only am I gonna deliver you from that, remove that deadness from you and give you life, I'm gonna exalt you to be seated at my right hand with me to rule and reign for all eternity. Isn't that better than not facing sickness? Isn't that better than not facing suffering? I would say with a resounding yes and amen. Do I always acknowledge that in my life? Absolutely not. Was I grumbling this morning? Yes, I was. I am sinful and I need Jesus to work in my heart to change that. But brothers, sisters, whenever you get that perspective, it is so much better the hope that we have than our hope merely being in the things of this world. So we need to stand the test. We need to persevere. The text goes on to say, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The thing is, we cannot stand the test in our own strength. We can't do this on our own. That the text seems to imply that God looks in our hearts. He looks at us and finds something good in us. For when we have stood the test, He will he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person when he is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. That ultimately we don't want to fall into this lie that we're the ones that persevere through this. The text makes it clear that we are—we succumb to sinful temptations. We succumb to these sinful tendencies ultimately it is God and his sovereignty that is the one that causes us to persevere the text that we read this morning in first Samuel sixteen seven says but the Lord said to Samuel do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him this is talking about when Samuel was coming to anoint the new king ultimately it would be David but he says for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart the Lord looks at the heart Of the matter of what's truly going on. And again, it can seem to imply that the Lord looks at the goodness within us. And that's what allows him. That's what causes him to either shine favorably or disfavorably on us. But some translate this text as understanding. But the Lord looks on the heart as in the Lord looks on his own heart. The Lord looks into his heart and sees his plans and his purposes, despite the vessel that he's choosing to work through to accomplish his plan and his purpose. So the same is true here in this text in James, that the blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. The only reason why we remain steadfast is because God enables us to remain steadfast. It's nothing good in us that causes some people to be victorious and others to fail. Ultimately, those that persevere, those that receive the crown of life, those that receive eternal life, receive it because God has so worked in them to give them that gift of salvation, to give them that gift of perseverance. It is God who sustains us through life to live a life in conformity to his image and obedience to him. It's not our own power that we are either slaves to sin or slaves to God. And for those that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, God is working in our will, in our lives, in our hearts to enable us to live in conformity to him. All glory to God, not to me. It's not because I'm good enough. It's not because I read my Bible every morning this week. It's not because I spent 20 hours on my knees in prayer. It's not because I went to feed the homeless or I built a hospital or did any of those things. It's only, if any of that stuff is done, praise God, amen. But it's only done because God has enabled me or whoever that person is to do those good works. He is the one that enables us to do good and to persevere in the midst of trial. He is the one that gives us this crown of life that he's promised to those who love him because he has enabled those who love him to love him. People do not love God. Romans 3 makes that very clear. No one seeks God. No one loves God. No one turns after him. They have all gone astray. Anybody who seeks after God, anybody who loves God, is only because God has done a work in his heart to cause him to do so. God is the one that stirs heart to place their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. It is done way before we ever say a prayer. It's way before we ever walk down an aisle. It's before that God has to do in a work of our hearts to remove a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. But I digress kind of. Um, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. This is really significant because James is telling these believers, whenever you're tempted, whenever you struggle with sin, don't blame God because God is immutable. God is good, God is holy, God is just, therefore sin has no bearing on him. Sin does not sway God. God ultimately is always gonna act in accordance to his will. Whenever we struggle with temptation, Who's responsible for it? Well, we could either say Satan, the devil made me do it, or self. And brothers and sister, I would say probably 99% of the time, it's sinful self why we're struggling with sin. It's not the devil made me do it. All right? There's few exceptions. You look at the life of Job, and Job was suffering the way he was because God allowed Satan to afflict Job. But all too often, the afflictions that we face are a result of sinful self. And we we need to be able to acknowledge that so that way we can truly repent, confess and repent and turn to God so he can lead us through that. He can deliver us from that. Also, there's a very big difference here whenever we look at temptation versus testing. Does God test us? Yes, he does. Does God tempt us? No, the text makes it clear. God tempts no one. Verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God will never tempt us with sin. He may use an occasion for testing, just like Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was tested by God, but who was the one who was tempting him? Satan. Satan was the one who was tempting him. Sin is enticing. Sin is where our temptation is found. Verse fourteen. But each person is tempted, not tested, tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? his own desires it's within ourselves that we are lured and enticed and when those desires have conceived they give birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death so there's kind of a little bit of a a, a process that goes on here we see there's temptation there's desire there's sin there's death whenever we're tempted we're lured and enticed by our own desires So there's a bit of a process that goes on here, and I wanna summarize it through what I'll just call the four Ds. I have to give credit, I believe that I got this from John MacArthur. I think he's the one that that did this, so just to cover my bases. Um, The four Ds, desire, which has to do with our emotions, deception, which has to do with our mind, design, which has to do with our will, I'll explain here in a minute, it'll make more sense, and disobedience, this is our whole self. So when we look at desire, sinful desires will always manifest themselves through a process leading up to sinful action. Desire takes place in our emotions. When we want something we don't have, we begin to desire that thing. To desire something in and of itself isn't inherently wrong. It's when we desire what is opposed to what God has instructed us. It's when we desire something contrary to the things of God, that that's when it becomes a stumbling block. Whenever we begin to desire something, our emotions are engaged, we move to deception. In our mind, we begin to rationalize and justify getting what we want. This desire we have, well, it's okay for me to desire this because of A and B. Well, this person has that, so it must be okay for me to move through with that, okay? And then we move on to designing within our will. We design, how are we gonna go about achieving what it is we desire? And once we've developed a plan, we move to disobedience. Oh my goodness. All right. Trials. Um, We moved to disobedience. And so this can happen in in the blink of an eye. This can be very quick. That we go through this process of seeing something we desire, uh, rationalizing and justifying how we're going to go about it, planning how we're going to go about it, and then acting on it, acting in sin. It can also happen over a long period of time. For me personally, that has a history of sinful tendencies or struggling with addiction, whenever there's something you desire, it doesn't matter how long it takes to get it, you're going to do what it takes to get it. So we need to understand that, yes, this is something that happens very quickly, but also we can be in this process over a long period of time. And we need to pray and ask for wisdom that God would enable us to see this and to nip that thing in the bud before it starts going down that that. that path the reality is God can deliver us from it at any point but we need to acknowledge whenever we start to desire something contrary to God we need to ask the spirit to convict us to submit that in prayer to him and to repent and turn away to that and be grateful for what it is that God has chosen to give us let me find my place in first John okay So verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we go through this process. It's just kind of a word picture that we go through that process to stumble in sin. And when we remain in sin, sin will always lead to death because sin is anything contrary to God. Sin is wholly separate from from God. Sin is the very thing that alienates us from God and everybody is born into sin because of our Adamic nature. We're born into sin, separated and alienated from God and it's only through Jesus Christ that Christ made a way for us to be reconciled to God and to once again live in union with God, to live in fellowship with God and so when we choose to engage in sin, we choose to engage in the very thing that separates us from God and leads to spiritual death. Jesus Christ, if he's Lord of your life, will deliver you from that. And will we stumble? Absolutely. Will we still sin? Yes, we will. First John makes that very clear that if anyone sins, we need to turn to Jesus Christ and he will help deliver us from that. But we need to confess our sin. We need to own that. But we can't choose to habitually live in that. We can't choose to say in Christian liberty, oh, well, Jesus has forgiven me so I can continue doing this on and on. Brothers and sisters, if you live that way, if somebody lives that way, the fruit in their life is really uh, attesting to something contrary to then Jesus Christ being Lord of our lives. And we need to take a look at that and really question, are we in Christ? Has God so worked in our life that we are in Christ? And if not, we need to turn to him in repentance and faith. Other times we may struggle with sin, but is our heart grieved over that? Are we seeking to allow the Lord to work in that area? Are we pleading? Are we doing whatever it takes to put death to that sin and allowing the Lord to lead us through that? I pray so. Some of us are going to struggle with sinful tendencies, a particular sinful tendency, perhaps the rest of our lives. But we need to allow God to be Lord of that and deliver us from that, not become complacent with that. Let me sum this up. Verses 16 through 18, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James is saying, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, do not be deceived that God is the one that leads you into temptation. Will he test you? Yes, he will. But will he tempt you? No, he won't. Do not be deceived that Satan is the one that's causing you to succumb to sin. Do not be deceived that somebody else is responsible for your sinful tendencies. Do people sin against us? Absolutely. Do those sinful choices of others affect us? Yes, they do. But ultimately, the way we respond to those sinful things that may have happened to us, that's our choice. That's our responsibility. That's our obligation. We can never blame somebody else for what they did to us for the reason why you chose to react to that situation the way you did. God is sovereign and God is in control and God is gracious. God is merciful and God can deliver you from whatever hurt that you've experienced. Whatever wrongs have been done to you. God can so work in your life where you can choose to live in obedience and to truth and respond in the right way to those sinful things that have been done to you rather than using that as an excuse for you to run headlong into sin and blaming other people for it. We cannot be deceived over that sin is our responsibility and we need to own it no matter the way that it looks and we need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ to deliver us from that. James goes on to say in 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. This goes back to what I was saying before, every good gift and every perfect gift, anything good in our lives, anything good that we do, anything good that takes place in all of creation, the whole of the universe, the credit can only be attributed to God. That is true for unbelievers, and believers. People will say, well, people do good all the time. Use some of the examples I said before, they feed the hungry, they build hospitals, they find cures for diseases, so on and so forth. But the reality is, is that our sinful tendencies do that for self. Let me find in my notes here where I'm at. Here we go, sorry. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Do all for the glory of God. Do all things for the glory of God. If anything is done apart from the glory of God, it's not good. So really it's our heart motive is the point that I'm trying to make. Is anybody who is an unbeliever is not doing the quote unquote good that they're doing for the glory of God. Even we as believers are we doing what we're doing for the glory of God. If it's not done for the glory of God, it's not good so good can only be done for the glory of god and that good can only be accomplished because god enables us to do it so god is the father every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change those verses the father of lights that yes we god has blessed us in his goodness with the sun the moon the stars he's given us amazing means in which to have life but god's goodness and his glory outshines all of that and the reality is eventually i don't know how The stars are going to burn out. The sun's going to go away. The moon is no longer going to exist. The light as we know it is no longer going to be present. But you know what will be? God. In his glory. In Revelation it makes it clear. No sun, no moons, no stars. Their light is the glory of God. That ultimately God is the means because of his character. His immutability, his unchanging nature is where our light comes from. Is his character does not change. And there's tremendous peace found in that. Everything that I've said thus far, there's no point where okay, God is with us, helping us persevere through the midst of our trials, and then all of a sudden it's like, never mind, I think I'm good. I'm not gonna do it anymore. That he's not like us, that he will always be there for us, that his character does not change. He is immutable. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. It is only because of God's will, just like we were affirming in that first Samuel passage, because God looking at his heart, his plans, his purpose. There's numerous passages all throughout scripture that affirm God knew you before the foundations of the world. God had a plan and purpose for his children before the foundations of the world that God has has a, a plan and that is what's taking place. And so of his will, he brought us forth. God saved those whom he saved for his will, for his plan and his purpose. God is working all things together for good, that we need to understand that God is sovereign and God is in control. And he brought us forth by the word of truth. How does God bring dead people to life? By the word of truth, where's the word? It's Christ. James makes that clear in the gospel that Jesus is the word, but it's also the scriptures, that that's where God has revealed himself, that that's where life comes from and through his life giving word. And he does this, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we would be examples to others, both here and now in our earthly lives. That we would be a first fruit and offering unto God the best of the best. Back in the Old Testament, in the, the the Mosaic law, they would bring their first fruits, the best of their crops, the best of their livestock, and sacrifice that, give that unto God as an act of worship. God is saying that's what we as believers should be, the best of the best given to God as an act of worship. But this is also true in eternity. Whenever it comes to angels and and, and our, our heavenly lives, that we will be a sort of first fruit, that God looks at human beings for whatever reason, because they're made in the image of God, because he's chosen to do that. And we are first fruit. We're the best of the best of what he has. And we need to live in response to that. So brothers and sisters, whenever we face trials, whenever we face struggles, whenever we face hardship, we need to remember we are facing it because that's the best possible place we can be god is there with us in the midst of it he is the one that's going to sustain us and allow us to persevere through that he's the one that's going to enable us to find joy in the midst of those trials and ultimately use that sanctifying work in our lives to conform us to his image so that way we can live in eternity with him and have true eternal joy and bliss for those that aren't in christ that's not true the trials, the struggles, the hardship that you face, there's not that same hope found in that. If your hope is placed in the things of the world, it's pretty bleak. And even if you have a pretty easygoing life, the reality is, is whenever you die, judgment. You face judgment. And so we need to turn to God, pray that God would change our hearts so that way we can find hope and joy in Jesus Christ, that he can deliver us and that we can be a first fruit unto him and these lives that he has chosen to bless us with. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this opportunity to spend this time in James, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life-giving nature of it. Lord, again, I just pray that you would use uh, some aspect of what's been shared today, Lord, that you would use your word ultimately to just bring us out of spiritual death into life, Lord. Whether we're still dead in sin, Lord, or whether we're facing particular trials and struggles in our lives, just asking God why why me? Why this? I pray that you would use this text as the occasion to remind us because you're gracious, because you're loving. That's why you're with us in the midst of it, Lord. And you are the one that's going to sustain us. You're going to be the one to enable us to persevere. And you're ultimately going to use these trials and these struggles for our good and for your glory, Lord. So I just pray that you would have your way in our lives, Lord, as we go throughout this rest of the day, uh, that you would be glorified. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.